Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week is Charles Gelman, an entrepreneur and data scientist who has been determined to make a difference to the outcome for healthcare by making sure that the patient becomes an effective co-pilot in their healthcare journey. Here to explain his innovation and talk about his perspective is Charles Gelman. Charles, you're very welcome to this call. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to spend time with the patient advocate and the CEO of Hido Health. But I want to start the conversation where we often begin with our guests, and that is, tell us the story of how you got involved in healthcare in the first place. Yeah, well, thank you, Moyes, for having me. I really appreciate it. And you know, starting off in healthcare was quite a journey. I never actually anticipated moving down that journey. It first started in finance, and there was a banking crisis that existed in the United States that altered my viewpoint of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to impact society. After that unfolded, I, I quickly realized that I didn't want to pursue an, a career in finance. And then I started looking into how can I impact as many folks as I can with my skill set. And that's when I started to look into healthcare and different applications. And I actually started working with a large pharmaceutical company, one of the largest ones in the world, to start my career, Johnson & Johnson. And I was able to learn quite a bit about the healthcare industry, the market, and then clinical trial development. And that basically led into a career within pharma, within medical device, medical software, and then finally to the journey where I am today, which is a medical device med tech startup. You were in finance and you moved into pharma and then you started to think about healthcare generally. What was it about healthcare? Was there a personal story behind this? Was there some health experience that was driving you? Yeah, there's a couple of different healthcare experiences that I have. One, I had a medical error happen to me where it almost cost me my life. Um, that medical error was a misdiagnosis of appendicitis. So because of that area, I went into septic shock when I was about 20 years old and almost lost my life. That prompted a radical change of my thought process and where I wanted to spend my time and devote my energy. So then there was a quick transaction happened into fine or out of finance for that matter into healthcare to focus on that particular aspect. What were the things that you were noticing as that 20-year-old, which made you think this system needs to be improved? Without getting into too much of the story, I went and experienced the, the system from a, a younger generation standpoint where I didn't really fully understand or was educated about the intricacies and the complexities and challenges of the healthcare system and how to navigate it. So I was a bit naive and ignorant and went to a physician and tried to get a diagnosis based upon how I was feeling. I didn't present them with my family history, which my father, I found out later, actually had the same thing when he was younger. But I wasn't presented with those questions, and I didn't know how to explain what was going on with my body and my history. So what you get is you get a few minutes with a physician or a nurse and then they try to do their best to understand what's happening with you. And ultimately, and this happens a lot, is that unfortunately, 
that with that interaction, they weren't able to get the right diagnosis. And that took me down a whole different path where thankfully I was saved later at the hospital because a physician did know what was going on. But mistakes are made, human error happens, and that's not uncommon within healthcare and other large industries because we are human. Human error happens, and it happens at the point of the physician interaction, but it also happens with patients themselves, doesn't it? Often it's the patient making an error that leads to a problem. That's something you've been exploring much more recently. So oftentimes it's very challenging for physicians and providers to understand what the patients are feeling or going through. And ultimately they're dependent upon what the patient is able to communicate. So when I was injured, I didn't have a great way to communicate exactly what was going on with my body. And many patients today have a similar problem that I had back then. But then you add on complexities of chronic disease, obesity, and other unknown conditions that they may not be educated about or may not be able to articulate to providers. So providers have a very short window of time to to try to figure out what's going on. And then they got to run off to the next person. And ultimately, what you have is you have patients that are trying to self-identify what's going on. Maybe they do a Google search. Maybe they talk to friends or family members or they get a second or a third opinion. And then you have a lot of variables that contribute to different diagnoses and different outcomes. And so it's a very, very challenging situation, not just for providers, but also for patients and family members. The consequences of that, the economic consequences of that are huge, aren't they? Many hundreds of billions of dollars that are spent on unnecessary hospitalizations, emergency room visits, medications, testing, diagnostics. You can go on and on about how much money it costs. But the the cost that is often overlooked are the cost of human life and the quality of care and their ability to normally live versus being misdirected into another avenue of trying to search for the answer. And I believe that if you have transparency and accountability where none exists in the home with the patients, you can ultimately open up a new window to providers so they can provide better care to these patients and they can get better outcomes. And ultimately that will trickle down to substantial cost savings for healthcare, health plans, patients, and the entire system in a whole. You're relying almost now on the patient as a co-pilot on this particular plane called healthcare. It's no longer a case of the health provider being the main source of information, the main source of support. We increasingly as patients are having to take responsibility for ourselves. And I guess that's where a lot of your work has focused in the last few years. The providers, they have a small glimpse into a patient's journey or patient's story. And if if most patients are residing at home or away from the clinic or the hospital, 99.9% of the time, you only get that short snippet or window into their health and their life. So ultimately, if the patient can't communicate that or they can't care for themselves, then how can you as a provider expect them to follow the type of directions or recommendations that you're asking of them so they can deviate their chronic condition, whether you're trying to stabilize it, 
whether you're, whether you're trying to put it in a state of regression or if it is progressing. Ultimately, they have to be able to take into a, account a lot of different information that's exceptionally complex, like different medications, why they're taking the medications, the dosing regimen in the medications, adverse events, contraindications, different types of dietary control, exercise, and you, you throw all of that at a patient with complex instructions and directions. And some people can self-manage themselves, but the majority of the population that suffers from chronic care disease has tremendous challenges to do that. The other thing, of course, is many patients not only have comorbidities, but they're also older people. And the challenges of having to negotiate multiple treatments as an older person, and often with a body that's like a Swiss watch, if something goes wrong, potentially leading to hospitalization. Is aging one of the factors that you've particularly been interested in? Some of those complexities and challenges or obstacles, I believe, span the entire life of people. Because depending upon where you are within your lifespan, whether you're, you're younger like I was when I was in my 20s, I had some other issues, you know, and then as you progress through your career, your profession or life and you have kids, then you're trying to manage those distractions and tasks. So life happens and people deviate accordingly. And as you age, then you could also potentially have other disease states or, or conditions. Maybe you had a stroke, maybe you have undiagnosed dementia or memory issues, or you're caring for a loved one. And all of those different variables contribute to one's health. Some might have caregivers that are able to walk them down this journey and help support them. And others, they're living alone and they may not have a support system. And, and folks that are living alone, no matter what the age is, they're about six times more likely to go to the hospital versus people that have family members that are supporting them at home. And these are the same people with chronic disease. So if somebody had congestive heart failure and they have may or may not have mental health and underlying diabetes, but if they're living alone, then they're on their own to do everything without anybody else supporting them or assisting them. And that's ultimately where I believe that there's a huge shortfall within the healthcare system as a whole. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. And then you think about where we are now in 2023. Technology has the potential to be the companion that we don't have with the patient at home. And that's in terms of monitoring the patient. It's in terms of supporting them with their treatment. It's in terms of improving or assisting with daily activities of living. And this is really where your interest has peaked in the last few years. Do you want to Tell us a little bit about that. We've spent over the last five years looking at automating the assisted robotic technology for patients at home so they did not have to worry about how to take medications, when to take the medications, whether it was the right medication, and taking it according to how the provider prescribes it. So this was a journey that we did never anticipated 
going down. Uh, my background's in clinical informatics, so it's data science. And initially, what started this journey for me is I was looking for a data source to understand a very simple question is whether or not patients are taking or missing their medications. And that led me down a rabbit hole of how do we track that? And how we track that right now is you go to a pharmacy, you pick up a medication, and because you've taken the medication, you picked it up, that therefore you've taken the medications. But we know through the clinical literature that's far from the reality of the truth. The deviation that's been studied may or may, I, may, or may not be 40 or 50% adherence. But even that is unknown because you don't have somebody physically watching the person. So once I started to research the, the data integrity or lack of, I, I wasn't able to pull. Then I started to look at devices in the marketplace and investigate whether or not they were good for patients. And then upon that investigation, we quickly realized that the devices in the, that were on the market were actually more complex to use than just sorting the Monday through Sunday pill bottle, pill set. And so I had access to some engineers at Stanford. I was an advisor for StartX, which is a Stanford-based accelerator. And I had access to some exceptional engineers in the area. And we went down this path of, can we develop something that's easy to use and that will help reduce at-home medication errors? And at-home medication errors are really a question mark at the current state because the device and the technology did not exist when we started. So our mission was, can we help eliminate medication errors at home for people so they can improve their lives and decrease the amount of hospitalizations and unnecessary waste within the healthcare industry? And humbly through my research at Stanford, and through my research at Rush University with early dementia and Alzheimer's patients, I think that we're very, very close to completely automating at-home medication administration and distribution with full chain of custody and a substantial decrease in at-home medication errors. And that is very exciting. Tell us the economics of this. How exciting is this? What is the scope for this technology to change the cost to healthcare. So the top 1% of chronic care patients utilize 39% of all healthcare expenditures, hospitalizations, emergency room visits, medications, diagnostics, tests, surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're able to take care of that 1%, you can drastically reduce the cost by hundreds of billions of dollars. So let me give you an example. We were piloting at a Medicare Advantage health plan in Northern California. We took on the most severe chronic care disease patients with congestive heart failure, underlying diabetes, mental health, substance abuse, obesity, you name it, they had it. And age ranges anywhere from mid 40s to late 80s. And we were able to reduce hospitalizations by 80%. So it begs the question, if these people are unable to assist themselves in caring for themselves, how can we expect a different result if a provider recommends a medication, but the patient is able to follow the directions? 
The patients that you're talking about are complex patients, patients with multimorbidity, patients, as you say, with a whole lot of issues, including memory loss, etc. These are not patients who are going to be necessarily well off. How is the equity issue been addressed by this? To what extent can we make sure that the device gets into the right hands? When you start thinking about health equity, you start thinking about socioeconomic status, you think about location, age, gender, race, a variety of other contributing factors. The great thing about the Hydo device is that it works for everybody. There's no discrimination. This is a device that can go into any home. You need to be able to support it by having internet and you need to have a mobile phone. But the majority of the folks now from very young ages to folks that are even in the mid eighties or older have access to that type of technology. So from a equality standpoint and getting into the homes of the people that need it the most, the majority of the folks that have able to leverage the Hydo device are typically the people that are socioeconomically disadvantaged or have some of those other complexities that haven't been addressed. And this can go into the home to address those situations without impacting, you know, the healthcare system because the device stays in the home 24 seven. You don't need a doctor or a nurse to stay with the patient like you would in a hospital because this resides in the home. Is there scope in your planning for health providers or insurance companies to actually invest in this? Because clearly you're going to be saving them a lot of money by providing these devices. In fact, it might even be economic for them to provide the internet access and the mobile phone as part of the package that they're offering patients. Has that been explored? The focus for us and the most important thing is the patients first. So ultimately, if we do right by the patient and we make sure that they have an enhanced quality of life, everything else will work its way out. And I believe by offering a situation where it's a win-win-win, as in the patient wins because they're getting better care, health plans don't have to spend as much money on the patients because they are receiving the appropriate care at home, then from an investor standpoint, it could be you know, a health plan, it could be a large hospital system that's at risk for their patients. It may be a large medical company that wants to utilize new home technology because the data sets are so unique. And these data sets, it's really, I consider it walking into a room right now where it's darkness. You know, you can't see anything. You don't really have an understanding of what's going on in the home. And you go from not having an understanding of what's going on in the home to now seeing everything. So as a provider or a patient or a caregiver, now you know whether or not your loved one is taking the medications. And then you also know any deviations. So as you know, if you get a reminder at let's say 1 p.m. in the afternoon and your loved one takes the medication at 115 one day, then 130 the next day, then two o'clock the next day. Well, it, is there something going on in that person's life for them to react that way? And some of those insights of knowing when they took it, when they missed it, when they did take it, and any other type of auxiliary behaviors that take place are all insights that I believe haven't really been researched at this point in time. 
the Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. How is this progressing in terms of your development? You've developed the device. Technically, it has been resolved that this works in the way that it does what it says on the box. In practice, how far are you down the route of working out how to deploy it? We've deployed in several locations in Northern California in different disease states. So we started actually, it was through friends of friends that reached out to us. So there was one patient that had a stroke and he's paralyzed in half his body. So he doesn't have the motor skills in order to open up the pill bottle and he can roll up in his wheelchair, unlock. We do remote direct observation therapy so he can take his medication. His wife can go to work and she knows that he can live independently with some freedom because the medication and the dosage and everything is done. And then she knows he's taking it because she gets a reminder on her app that the medication has been taken. And if he doesn't, then she knows that she can call him because something went awry. And that's just one particular patient. But in other patients, we, we tested out in early and moderate dementia patients. We didn't think that this device would be able to work, but we, we stumbled upon an, a new technology or an existing technology you might be able to um, see. It's called chaining. And with memory care issues, you have one, two, three, four, five. And with normal you know, cognitive awareness, you can deviate one, five, two, four, and you have that recall function. But people that suffer from memory loss, they have to have a rigid structure. So the way we designed and engineered this device, again, I'm not going to give us credit on this. This is just the way we designed it. It was in chaining. And through Rush University and the Clinical Research Excellence Center out there, we were able to uncover that this is working. And this is working at 100% set up and dispensing amongst our sponsored research at this point. So it's very, very exciting. And I, I think the deployment and the commercialization of this technology, we're just right now speaking with the right partners to see what the best fit is. But ultimately, we want to be able to make the biggest impact and align with our objectives with whomever we choose to partner with in the future. So looking back on your career, you started in finance and you went to pharma, etc. How do you feel the next 10 years is going to be for you? Where to from here? My focus is solely based upon trying to impact as many folks as I can. My interest is really been in the data science landscape. So what I'd like to do is connect the dots of the future versus connecting the dots as I progress in five years, 10 years. So what I mean by that is this, my dream has always been, can we create a blueprint for health? And I believe we can create a blueprint for health because the cocktail of medications that happen at home They've never been correlated with people's blood work and outcomes. And if we can look at some of those inequalities and some of the, the population data like age, gender, race, location, disease state, cocktail of medications, and you correlate that information with many, many, many units, you can now uncover and unpack what cocktail of medications or 
or lack of medications will ultimately get the best outcomes for the people. And I would like to investigate that. I could see myself over the next five to 10 years, really trying to dive into how do we maneuver people into getting the most bang for the buck or the risk reward for medications and the cocktail medications and to enhance, you know, health outcomes in the future. I, I, I could see myself doing that. As I think about that, I also want to reflect on what now seems like, you know, like a tired question. And that is that technology is very much like the atom. The atom's been split. The technology now exists and do all kinds of things. Our phone is listening to us constantly. And in fact, you only have to have a conversation about something. And the next thing you know, lots of ads appear on your phone that seem to have focused on the conversation you've had. We're trading our privacy sometimes for the good and sometimes for not so much good. Where do you stand on that question? How do you, as a data scientist, as somebody with this interest, feel about attempting to do good, knowing that it, this, in, this technology can also be used for other means? I think it depends upon your perspective and the will of where you're directing the company. Our intentions are to help people. That's it. The product development and device are about the people first. Everything else is secondary. So when we approach patients, when we deploy devices, it's, are they also committed to the same thing? Do they want to improve their life as we want to help them care for themselves? And the technology that we have behind it, you could always have nefarious characters in the background that may want to use the, the data or the information in a different way. But the way I see it is that the good, the risk reward far outweighs any type of actions that could potentially happen that would damage or hurt people. And I think that some of the ways that we could look at this is that if, you know, we have images of people every single day taking medications and you can do an analysis on people's faces and based upon the different types of medications and the different types of state within their disease and the progression, regression, or stabilization, I believe we can look at the images and then start predicting out what those outcomes could be in the future once you have enough data sets available. So with that in mind, where is this all going to end? As you take your last breath on this earth, which will be many, many, many years from now, what do you, would you like to say that you have managed to accomplish what would my life be like at that point? My motivation is I want to see a world where people can assist themselves without having to depend upon others. And if we can develop technology that helps assist them to enhance their life, then that's enough for me. That, that's, that would make me happy. Charles Gelman, it's been an honor spending time with you. You are a visionary. You are doing what we all hope will happen in the years ahead, that we will become real co-pilots in this healthcare journey where we have been today passengers and increasingly regarded as expensive passengers on this airline called healthcare. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you, Moya, so much. It was an honor to be talking to you today. The Health Design Podcast serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.